Uh, let's get moving on today. If you have a Bible, open up to John 3.16. I've got confidence that you can find that. That's a, a very familiar passage um, that everyone is sure of. Uh, we'll start there today in John 3.16. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing today at this family kind of gathering, this is a great time because we get to let our volunteers, uh, the people who serve faithfully in preschool and kids ministry every single Sunday uh, all year to give them just a break to let them breathe uh, a little bit today, and we're, we're thankful that we get to do that. So you can probably already recognize and notice there's a little bit more movement in here than there typically is, uh, a little bit more talking, a little bit more squirming, maybe even at some point some weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the hope is, is that we would just breathe. Uh, we as adults and parents would just simply breathe because we are celebrating uh, the fact that they are here with us today. Uh, so parents, don't let that bother you that they're here because we're not letting it bother us. So embrace all of that. Um, unless, of course, you fed your child a bag of Skittles and a frat for breakfast. Um, and then sometimes in the service, the spirit kind of starts moving in them, uh, if you know what I mean. If you, that happens... Right out the doors, down to the hallway, down the, there's a lounge. We've got the, the live stream coming into there. So if you just need to take a time out and run down there, uh, you can do that as well. I'd encourage you to stay in as long as you can. Uh, another reason why we do this, families, family gatherings throughout the course of the year, is there these incredible, incredible opportunities for the children uh, to see parents and other adults modeling worship so they can watch us. And that puts a great responsibility on us parents and us, the rest of the church. They're watching us today. We are to model what it looks like for them. So that's a great responsibility and a challenge as we continue to move forward. Uh, but today, specifically, as we continue in our study of Advent, we are going or have lit the Advent candle of love today. Um, and we're going to really look at how the Christmas story, how it was God's greatest gift um, in humanity in the entire universe God's greatest gift of his son brought love to very unlovable people. Um, at Christmas, as we talk about gifts that God gives, at Christmas time, we do gift exchange, right? You're going to do that in the next few days. You probably already have done that. One of the most favorite things people love about Christmas is gift giving. But many people don't know why we do those things. It's just kind of tradition or custom. We don't really know where that comes from. One of the, one of the reasons and one of the ways that we uh, give gifts at Christmas is because of the original Christmas story in Luke where we see the three wise men, the magi, bringing gifts to Jesus Christ. They brought three gifts, in fact. Kids in the room, who knows one of those gifts that Jesus got from the wise men? One, raise your hand. I'm going to call you out right here. Ella. What's that? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't hear. What'd you say, Jessica? A crown? A, a crown? N not quite. Almost. Not quite. Somebody else. One, right here. Ava. Gold. That's one. There's three of them. So there's gold. Give me another one. Frankincense. One more. Avery. Myrrh, there we go. Good job, guys. That's awesome. Uh, take advantage of your interactive portion because they don't come often. Uh, so there's three, the three gifts that Jesus received at Christmas time. And, and when we start to really unpack what those three gifts were, uh, they're really not that spectacular, to be honest. Right? Let me tell you about two of them. Uh, the first one is myrrh. And myrrh was this resin uh, that they used from a shrub, and it was used for embalming uh, and anointing dead bodies. 
So this is like giving your kid this junior mortuary kit and say, go play funeral home, right? Kids, you probably don't have myrrh on your Christmas list this year, and that, that's a good thing. Uh, and the second thing we look at is frankincense, and really it's not that much better. Uh, it, was a, it was used to make a perfume, and nothing really says, I love you, but not that much, more than a bottle of frankincense from TJ Maxx on Christmas Eve, right? You ever had to run out really quickly to grab some perfume? I may or may not have done that before. But uh, the third gift is gold. And this one really kind of saved the day because this gift had the greatest monetary value of all. Gold, precious gold. Uh, now, economists and some people would say these gifts that Jesus received, they were just practical gifts. Like he did his use very practical, it's just all they had. And then most theologians would say that these gifts had specific spiritual symbolism, that the gold was given to Jesus was going to represent his kingship, that the, uh, the frankincense was going to demonstrate his priestly duties, and that the myrrh was significant because it was going to point to the death of Jesus Christ. Now, rather, it doesn't matter which one you believe. If it's just a practical gift or it had spiritual significance, either way, these gifts paled in comparison to the gift that was present that day on Christmas. The gift of God himself. The infant God made visible to the world. The greatest demonstration of his love to the world was the gift. And ultimately, that's the reason why we give gifts at Christmas. It's because God gave a gift of a son. So we're going to look at that today. And we need to be careful um, as we always navigate through the Christmas season. Because we hear about the story of two teenagers. Uh, Mary gets pregnant and they get on a camel and they're making this trek to Bethlehem. And uh, he gets, he's born in a trough and there's no place for them at the end. There's this opportunity or really this danger of us getting caught up in the sappiness of the story. Like, this could be a very hallmark moment, right? I, oh, I just love the underdog story. It's so good. And we could just miss the significance of all of this, that in fact, this baby born that day was God's only expression of love to unlovable people. And we want to lean into that today. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get busy on the text. Father, we love you. And we adore the fact that your little children are in this place today with us to, to learn, to hear, um, and to watch us model worship for them. Uh, Father, I pray that you teach the child and you teach the adult in this room. Father, for all generations, you would help us to love Jesus more than Christmas. Father, do that through your teaching today and the gift of love in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so let's look at John 3.16. And this will start our foundation. And uh, listen, John 3.16, clearly very familiar passage. Like I said, most of you already know this. I want you to be careful to not glance over. If you kind of say, oh, I know John 3.16, I can run to the bathroom or go get a drink. I'll get back later. Listen, this is not just for your cognitive understanding, but also to help you possibly under explain the gospel out of one verse. Martin Luther calls this the heart of the Bible or a miniature gospel. So the hope is you would probably lean into this passage and be able to maybe share uh, the gospel with somebody here at Christmas this year and on into 2019. So John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world, emphatically, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, I'm going to point out five things in, uh, in John 3.16, five D's, which is just an easy way to navigate through this text. Um, these won't be on your screen, your five D's, but if you write these down, go ahead. The first one is design. This is the design of God's love. It is his design to show to an unlovable world who doesn't have his love is to express it through the giving of a son. By, by no other means does God give a salvific love to the world except through the giving of a son. Meaning God doesn't say, I love you world. Just look at the sky. Look at the clouds. Look at creation. That's how I love you. You know, he says, this is the only way that you can experience the salvific love of God is right here through this design. All right? So we have to then zoom in on the word love because this is an important text. And if we look at it through English language lenses, this becomes a difficult concept for us because we use the word love, one word to describe a lot of different kinds of love, don't we? Like I use the same word uh, love to describe how I feel about Cali, my kids, and a good lasagna. Like I, I, I say I love all those things, right? That's our English language. So we have to go back to the Greek, the original New Testament language, to understand what does the word love mean? Because this is super, super important. We go back to the context. The word um, love in the Greek, it comes in a few different forms. Uh, one would be phileia or phileo, which means a brotherly or friendship kind of love, like a bro-sister kind of love that you have for your brother or sister. The second would be eros or eris, which is a, um, a physical, intimate love, if you know what I mean. I'm trying to keep it safe for the children today, but that's another version of love. This love that, that John is speaking of here is the word agape. And agape is not emotive. It's not physical. It's not warm, fuzzy, I love you because you're cool and you're beautiful. That's not this kind of love. This is a love of the will. Agape love is saying, I know what your greatest need is, and I'm willing to sacrifice anything to give it to you. And that is the context of agape love in John 3.16. God saw our greatest need himself and he was willing to do anything in order to give it to us. Clearly, we see that in the giving of a son. There's a, a movie um, in the Czech Republic. It's called um, The Most. And um, it's also translated into The Bridge um, and, and many other languages. But it's the story, this movie, it's a good, you can go look it up later today. But the premise of the story is a man who um, who's, he's a bridge tender. Like he takes care of the toll bridge and he's operator. Um, and he goes to work one day and he brings his eight-year-old son with him. And as he's just kind of doing his normal duties in the day, uh, the bridge uh, raises up to allow a, a ship to pass underneath it, just a normal operating day. And as the ship is passing underneath it, unexpectedly a train is approaching an hour early. There is a great dilemma that's getting ready to occur. There's a ship underneath that must pass through, and there's a train full of a lot of people going across the top. So there's a panic that begins to set in. The father is going to have to make a decision, which even more to complicate the decision, his son, in a panic, falls down into the gearworks of the toll bridge. So at this moment, 
this father has a choice to make. If he lowers the bridge down so the train can pass safely and save all the people, it's going to crush his son. That is what he does. He makes a choice. The sacrifice of all of those people on the train, he lowers the bridge, crushing his one and only son. And that is a picture of agape love, and that is a picture of the love that God demonstrated for us. Now, I have two sons, I have two daughters, I have my wife, and listen, I love you. I love you, church. But if I have to sacrifice one of my kids, you're probably going to lose, all right? I think you probably understand that. We wouldn't be willing to do those things. And I love you, right? What makes this more scandalous is that God did this for rebel sinners, unlovable people, not deserving of our love. We weren't pretty people. We were unlovable. And God did it for us where at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This makes this kind of love very scandalous. It also makes it perfectly acutely aware that God is the only one capable of loving like this. Now, there's the design of God's love. The demonstration is clearly in the giving of the Son. God didn't just say, I love you, I love you. No, he showed it, right? He showed it by the giving of a son. You ever try to tell your wife, men, that you love her, love her, love her, but then you don't show her? How's, how long does that work, right? I mean, they're eventually they're going to be like, you say it all the time, but how about you show me a little bit of love, right? We God demonstrated the love. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed it. So you have the design, the demonstration. And then the third part of John 3.16 is duty, D-U-T-Y. The responsibility of us to respond to this. Because this child born unto us is not born unto us unless we are born again to this child. This love child was not a a child that universally saved all people, only to those who were born again to this child. What does the text say? Whosoever believes. So we have a responsibility to believe. Now, theologically, let's get some foundation here. Whosoever or whoever, depending on your translation, God knows the whoever. In fact, God determines the whoever and the whosoever. Paul says in Ephesians that this whoever was determined before the foundation of the world. John 6, says that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them to Jesus. He already knows who the whosoever are. This is a radical but a foundational doctrine that we need to understand. God knows the whosoever. And then we have this responsibility once God has called us to what? To believe. To believe. Now, the church made many errors, uh, many generations, us included, where this whole idea of believing was a decision for Christ. If you just make a decision right there in your seat, you just, right now, if you just do this right here, decision for Christ, you're in, you're good. If all you have is a decision for Christ and not a dedication to Christ today, You never made a decision for Christ. You didn't have him then, and you do not have him today. Because believing 
is believing. It's, it's every single day, a waking up, I believe in, I believe in, and it actually changes the way that we live. Now, in this movie, The Bridge, the, there was people on that train that got saved, but they didn't have a clue what had happened. They were literally unchanged by what had just occurred. They went back to their ordinary lives. They got off the train. They, their comings, their goings, their, their regular flow of life. Nothing was altered whatsoever. And then there was a portion of people that knew and made aware of what had happened by the crushing of the sun. And their lives were forever changed. People could look at them and they were just different. And this is the same reality for those that they. Have you received this love of God, the crushing of a son, and then it, has it impacted the way that you live? Now, I'm clearly talking about something beyond going to church. No, I mean impacting the way that you live, the way that you think. That you, now you think about God. You, you fight sin. You, you want to please God with your life. It has altered your schedule. It's altered your checkbook. It's altered into your life because you really, truly believe. Or are you someone who's like the people on the train that were literally unaffected by this crushing of a son? I pray you were the former. I pray that you would be people to see the correct response to receiving this gift of Jesus Christ is to be living these things out in our life in a transformed way. When we experience the love of God, this is what happens to us. Uh, then the, the fourth D is danger. It's in there, right? The danger is what? It's perishing. And many times we're like, why well, do we have to talk about perishing in church? Maybe you grew up in a church that talked a lot about perishing. And you're like, can we just not talk about perishing? Can we just talk about God's love? Well, that's half of it. The other part is there's a real danger in rejecting the gift of a son. A danger of perishing, not only later, not only in the eternal life, the afterlife, but a perishing now. There's a perishing that's happening for those who have not received this gift that's happening now in the day. So there is a great danger in rejecting God's love through the gift of a child. And then the fifth D here is destiny. If I believe and I receive this love gift of God, His Son, Jesus Christ then my destiny is not only abundant life now, John 10.10 10 says, but it also says that I have eternal life later with God in heaven. So there is a destiny that is with us too. So let's move past this into a place of the implications of this gift. Let's say we've received this gift, we believe it, we're all in. Uh, there's implications to receiving this gift. Um, and one of those things is the everlasting impact and the effect of the gift. Um, meaning, when, when we get gifts at Christmas time, gifts always get old. They, they wear out. Like some of your children will be worn out with that gift probably 30 minutes after Christmas morning. Like it takes that quickly. There was a time when the iPhone 4 was awesome, right? Everybody had a, anybody had an, I, an iPod? Oh, amazing, right? Where are they at now? Yard sales every Saturday, right? All of that stuff that we get, every physical possession that we get is the stuff of someone's future 
garage sale. You can chase that down as long as you want to, and I promise you'll end up at the garage sale. You might be saying, no, not really. I'd never give up grandma's thing. You would. Somebody's going to. It'll happen. Why is this important to know? Because this gift of God giving of a son is not like any other gift. It never gets old. It never goes out of style like your Crocs. I mean, it just doesn't. It, it, it's always new. It's always fresh. It never gets old. And it is, it is a love that is an inseparable, unconditional love that we cannot experience on this earth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 35 about this love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's saying that when you've, you've gotten this love from God, that an angel can't snatch it away from you. A demon can't even snatch it away from you. That there's nothing literally in all of creation, including you and me, that can actually separate us from the love of God. That's huge. That's huge. Let me tell you why. I met with a young man a couple of weeks ago, head held low, beaten down, broken. Man, I said, well, what's going on with you, man? What's up? Man, I just know, man, I'm not living my life right. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I've got this sin I can't break free from and I'm just struggling. I'm like, man, I, okay, I got you. How do you feel God, what do you think God's response is to you right now? He doesn't love me. Why do you say that? Because I'm doing a lot of things that aren't very lovely. So his head's down. He's beaten, broken, rejected. So then he starts to question if God even loves him. Does God love me? And then if you start to chase that down, if God loves me, then I don't even know if I'm saved anymore, right? Isn't that where we go? And I'm like, bro, listen to me. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8, 35, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, not even you. You can't even out the love of God. You can't even walk away from God. Why? Because you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are his and the family of God, that we are actually possessed by God. We are a God-possessed one. We don't, we don't get to experience assurance of salvation because we're tightly clinging to Jesus. We are held and he's clinging to us. That's the whole point here. And he doesn't lose anyone. Now see, that right there, that frees us up from doubt and fear and from feeling the love of God. That, that frees me up to know that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. That gives me power. That gives me this language that Paul talks about being a conqueror. Right? I can speak that now because I know there's nothing going to separate me from the love of Christ. Now, let me, let me move into some practical pieces here, okay? Um, some of you have experienced this agape love from God. And listen, it's wonderful. Your life's been transformed. But let's be honest. Uh, some of us, we often struggle 
to experience the love of God. Doubt can still creep in at times when the world's pressing down or when we're not performing up to his standards. Uh, doubt can kind of creep in and we forget the love of God. So I'm going to give you a couple of, pra- of things. I've got three things to help us uh, embrace, be covered in, and really marinate in the love of God. All right, so here's, here's, here's the first one here. And these will be up. If you want to experience the love of God, then go to war with the world. If you want to be experience the love of God, then you really have to go to war with the world. Let's read 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, the word world here uh, is John's not referring to the word cosmos in the Greek, which just means the totality of God's creation. That's not what he's talking about here. He's also not talking about that John 3.16 love, that God so loved the world, meaning people from all of nationalities all over the universe. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about to us, why he's telling us to not love the world, he's talking about the total operating system of an unbelieving world. Values, thoughts, systems. Specifically here and categorically here, he lists three things. There's sins. He talks about the sins of the flesh, sins of the eyes, and pride. So he, he kind of categorically does that. Don't follow the patterns of the world the way they act with, with sexuality. Man, don't follow the patterns of the world in pride. So there are some physical things. Are we talking about drunkenness and, and, um, and gluttony and sexual immorality? Yes, those things are true. Don't do those things the way the world does those things. The world glorifies all of those things. But there's also things in here that talks about the operating system of the world, the values of the world. Things like uh, we live in a, a world, American world, that operates under the enlightenment of man. Do you know what the enlightenment of man is? I can do anything. I can be anyone I want to be, and I can do whatever I want to do because I believe in me, and I'm going to be me. You see, that's a world system. We don't, we don't fall in love with that. We don't operate like that. We don't fall slaves to the acceptance and the approval of other people. We don't fall prey to pride. We don't celebrate freedom of gender today. I get to be what I want to be. I don't get to celebrate life, and it's my choice to do with it what I want to do. These are worldly operating systems. We have no peace with these things. We do not swim downstream with the patterns of this world. We swim upstream against its current. And in fact, John says here, if we actually love the patterns of the world, like if I'm digging the music the world's listening to right now, yeah, I love it. Or the, the movies that, that's on the big screens, I love all of those things. And I want to do all the things that everybody else is doing. If that's you, John actually says the Father is not in you. Because what happens at the moment of your conversion, if you've actually had an encounter with the living God, there's a supernatural process that begins to take place in you. It's called sanctification. And when that happens, 
Two things are simultaneously going on for the rest of your life. You are falling more in love with Christ and you're falling out of love with the world. You're breaking up with the world and you're falling more in love with Jesus. So there's a, a marker of salvation that really John's giving here. Do you love the world? Are you cool with it? You want the approval of other people? You slaves to what's cool, what's hot, following all the patterns of the world? Or do you have this distaste in you? That is a mark of salvation. All right? So let's move on to the second one here. The second is if you want to experience the love of God, you have to live in the Word. If you want to experience the love of God, you have to live in the Word. The Word. So many people often try to experience God and, and all of these realms, and they want to experience the love of God, and they look for that in every single place in the world except His Bible, except His written revelation of Himself. And you cannot experience this deepening love of God if you are not in His Word. In fact, Christ, we know, was the Word of God. Look at John 1, 14. And the Word, this Word that existed before the foundation of the world, was Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only the Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. If we want to experience the love of God, we must experience to live in His Word. There's nothing more valuable Nothing more important than a believer soaking themselves, marinating in the Word of God to experience the love of God. Now, if you think about, I'm not just telling you to go read your Bibles. I'm not just, hey, go read your Bibles, memorize some Scripture. Because we know the Pharisees, they got all of that, right? They had all the Bible trophies and they knocked it out of the park, but they did not love God. They did not love Christ that was right in front of their face. So I'm not saying go read your Bibles. If I told you uh, to go to Percy Priest Lake, let's take these fishing, fishing as an analogy. If I told you to go to Percy Priest Lake, get all your gear, uh, get your fishing pole, go get a boat, and you literally just fire up that boat, and you drop your pole in the water, and you put the bait there, you're in, and all of a sudden you just turn that motor on and you jet across uh, Percy Priest Lake fast as you absolutely can to get it done with, and you don't catch a single thing. You won't catch a single thing, maybe a tree or something. You won't catch a fish at all. You would actually be called a bad fisherman, right? What do you have to do? You have to sit. You have to be patient. You have to throw that pole in the water and sit. Not move, just rest in it. In the same way, the spiritual reality we cannot read our Bibles like that. We cannot skim through and pass through just to get it over with. Just to take up the least amount of time in our day. We have to get our Bibles out and not only read our Bibles, but allow our Bibles to read us. To meditate on me. God, I need your promises today. God, I don't feel loved right now. My spouse is not being very loving to me. My family not being very loving to me. I'm doubting the promises of God right now. I'm doubting Paul and Romans. I need you to tell me that you love me. I need to sit there and soak in it for a while, or I'm not reading my Bible right, right? 
We know there's distractions in your day. and We could all come up with excuses why we don't do it, don't we? We know it. But then practices set in, recitals set in, business meetings, classes, you name it. There are things all day long that are invading that space that you have with God. Listen to what Francis Chan says about this. There is no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have time, you need to quit something to make room. Skip a meal. Cancel a meeting. End a regular commitment. Miss a practice. There is literally nothing more important that you could do today. And that's so true. Listen, that's so, so true of us. There's nothing more important that we can actually do for ourselves individually, but for our families, our houses, to sit in and under the Word of God, because that is where we will experience the love of God. All right? Here's the third point here today. If we want to experience the love of God, it's found in community. It's found in community. Now, the reason we have to speak so loudly about this um, now as a church is because this, the, 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 the normative cultural Christianity is continuing to grow louder and louder every day, telling Christians that they don't have to be involved in church in order to experience the love of God. Couch, that's all good. Watch online this weekend. Dial into Charles Stanley. That's your church. That's community, right? Like, we are constantly being bombarded with that. And the more technology is developed, that's what's going to be told to you. Do you believe that or not? Do you believe that your couch is church? I'm telling you, it's not. Community, this is where we experience the love of God. Because God has always been about a people and not about a bunch of people expressing their own religion on their own terms. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Strive for full restoration. He's talking to people. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you, will be with you. You see how our relationship with, um, with God is tied to our relationship with other believers. Maybe you uh, remember a familiar story in John 20 when the resurrected Jesus uh, showed up to his disciples and he breathed on them like he blew on them the holy spirit and their lives would be forever empowered from that moment forward we're actually told in john 20 that thomas was not there thomas one of the disciples he wasn't there like the, he, john went out of his way to tell us who wasn't there he could, he didn't just say hey these are all the people who are present no he said thomas wasn't there why is that important to know because Thomas suffered greatly because he lacked out in these, uh, these, uh, these opportunities for community with other people. How do we know? What was Thomas's nickname? Thomas the Doubter. That was not happenstance, not, not just a thing they picked out of blue. He was a doubter. Why? Because he often uh, forsook uh, community with other people. And when we as a church, as a believing people who receive this gift... When we forsake community, when we easily come up with excuses why we can't come here on Sunday, why we can't come to Bible studies, men's groups, women's groups, 
additional things, when we continue to come up with reasons to forsake the gathering of this, we will turn into little Thomases. And here's what begins to happen in our minds. I don't really know if this is real. I, I don't know if God really does love me. Doubt begins to invade that space, and then we start to wrestle with our faith. Is he real? Is this church thing really real? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I not? Am I saved? Am I not? Is God real? That's when doubt begins to happen. So we have to lean in to community because it is how God created us to do. So let me give you a couple practical pieces on how you can do that. Because we want to move you from the aisles to alliances, right? That's our hope here is that when you get beyond here and get into these alliances with the church and other people, uh, some of you have been here for a while. You know us. You've been coming and checking us out in seats, and there's a kind of an awkward thing happening. You could say that we're kind of dating one another. Um, but it's time for you to stop dating the church and to fall in love with the family of God. And how do you do that? You, you become a covenant member here. You say, Okay, I know you, or I want to know more about this place. I'm all in. I'm tired of kind of sitting with one foot in, one foot out. I want to become a member of this church because armies have enlistments, teams have rosters. The church has membership to identify who the people of God are, to hear our stories about salvation. Is there baptism that needs to take place? That is how we get to know one another. And then the second way that you do that, then you begin to take things uh, like this, and this becomes much more than a handout at the door by the church, right? It says, I want to experience the love of God. I want to experience the love of Christ. I want community. Where do I go get it? You get it right here. You get it right here. And in this thing, there are studies, there are weekday studies on campus, off campus, things beyond Sunday, because we know that Christianity is way beyond Sunday. Little C's next to all the classes that are offered here on our campus. And you need to lean into these things. And I'll tell you right now, I said this in first service, women, I'm proud of you because you are, I don't know why, but you are simply just better at doing these things. That's encouraging and also disturbing at the same time. Because men, we are responsible for the stewardship of our families and the spiritual condition of our homes. We will answer for those things. And there's no other responsibility in your life. Provision, job, work, practice, teaching your kid how to throw a ball. None of those other responsibilities will ever be anywhere as important as you leading your family to Jesus. And I'm going to challenge you to step into these things. They're going, they're going to be good for you. They're for your good, not just obedient, but they are actually for your good. So as we encourage you to sign up for some of those, I'm going to say one last thing about this community idea. If you're here and your desire for community, connectivity, and belonging is greater than your desire for Christ, this won't work for you. Let me tell you why. Because community will let you down. Community is full of hypocrites and sinners. And I'm one of them. And I will let you down. And these people in this community will let you down. They'll forget to call you. They, they'll give you a mean look sometimes. They might even gossip about you. They may even make you feel isolated and not talk to you enough. 
And if all you're looking for is just connectivity, belonging, and this great experience, and not to desire Christ, here's what will happen when the people let you down. You're gone. You will go down the street, and you will hop to the church, next church, to the church, and you'll look for it everywhere. i got to find out where I can belong. Where's my connectivity? Where's the experience here? I'm just going to do all these things. Here's why Jesus Christ is better than community. Because he is the one, when you love Christ more than anything else, and he is the banner which everything else falls under, that keeps me rooted when things don't go my way. When people talk about me and I don't feel connected, that keeps me rooted in all things because Jesus Christ is better than all of those things. Right? That's my, that's my plea to you. As you get involved in community, that you would have the proper expectations before you step into those, right? Because they hurt sometimes. They're sticky, they're messy, but we are the people of God. And Paul calls us to be of one mind and one spirit that can surely overcome some feelings of unconnectivity, right? I think so. I think we're the people of God, and I have hope in you, and I want to lean into you and challenge that you would dig up roots um, based upon Christ. So uh, let me me call the band out, because we're going to close out here with this one thought. I did some research this week, and um, I found out that, that every year that over $1 billion of gift cards go unredeemed. $1 billion, billion with a B, gift cards go unredeemed every year. That's crazy. If I get a $5 gift card from Chick-fil-A, I'm gone that day. Like, I'm going. Holy hen. Christian chicken, I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to use that gift card. It's not sitting there long. How dumb would it be to let that card just sit there and me not redeem it, right? But here is this most immeasurable, precious, greatest gift of God ever, Jesus Christ, the infinite, infant God, right there, the gift of a son. Have you redeemed that gift? Have you said, I want it. Or have you not redeemed it yet? What a great opportunity in a day and a time and a season for you to receive the gift. If that's you, man, would you come and talk to me at the end of service today? Would you just walk outside and you might not even know if it, you do or don't. But you would just be something stirring in you. And that pit in your stomach begins to make you feel uncomfortable. Don't ignore that. Walk into that. Come speak to us. We'll pray with you. We're going to love you through. We want to ultimately show you that Jesus is better than anything has to do with Christmas. Jesus is better than all of this. So let's pray. Father, we love you. You are truly a treasure to us, this gift of a son. Um, Father, we, we acknowledge we were not deserving of the gift. We were not lovely people You were not lonely. You did not need us, but yet you gave. But yet you gave. You gave your son and the greatest demonstration of love that this world will ever see. Father, thank you for that gift. I pray that you would uh, extend that gift today to someone here. You would show them the gift. You would invite them into life eternal and abundant. And Father, I pray that you, you deepen our our uh, fire and zeal and love for you 
uh, that already know you. Would you just rekindle that? Make our hearts flutter uh, for you the day that we first knew and the day we first said I'd do to you. We want that. It is good for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.